hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 169, Stalin's Second Front. Last time, on June 7th, as the sun went down, SS Reconnaissance Battalion Commander Kurt Meyer, put in charge of a temporary Kampfgruppe, had failed in pushing the Anglo-Canadians in front of him back into the sea. Fortunately for him and his, the Hitlerjungen were well-trained in defense and well-supplied, thanks to the loving attention of Himmler and Hitler. Of course, all of that was quickly canceled out by the Allied naval support and command of the air. Alone, the HMS Rodney, a Nelson-class battleship, could fire nine 16-inch shells, each holding almost a ton of high explosives, and send it 20 miles. As for the Battle of the Air, that aspect was hell on earth for the Luftwaffe, Wehrmacht, and the Waffen-SS. On D-Day, the Allies had put up some 12,000 sorties, the defenders 319. And after that, German planes were rarely seen in the skies over Normandy. And it only got worse from there. The Allies, because they controlled, no, dominated the skies, were able to land and move inland without threat from above, whereas the Germans, if they so much as poked their head outs, could expect attention from above. And the Jag bombers, a.k.a. meat flies, the British fighter bombers, specifically the Hawker Tempest, was faster than any plane, British or German, at low levels, which had taken out three German fighters on D-Day with no losses. To have one of them spot you, even while in a heavy Tiger tank, was the equivalent of death. The tank's deck armor, which could save a crew from so much, was helpless here. The best the Tiger crews could do, if spotted from above, was jump out of their tanks and hide, watching as their incredible machines, which had gotten them through so much in the east, was cracked open like an egg. This series of run and hide normally ended with the curse, where in the hell is the Luftwaffe? To be sure, the Allies had helped themselves in their landings, by confusing the enemy of where they would come ashore. The OKW believed that the Normandy landings were only a feint, though an impressive one, but the real Allied target was Pali-Calais in northern-central France, a bit closer to Britain than the shores of Normandy. Which is why the refitted Liebstandata division was ordered to stay in Belgium for ten days after June 6th. More besides, several other panzer formations were ordered to hold back to see just where the main thrust of the Allies would come. Even by the afternoon of June 8th, Sepp Dietrich's three panzer divisions were still getting into position due to the destroyed rail lines in the area to launch their own overpowering offensive. And having fought in the east, their tactics were solid. Normally, they would have motorized infantry move forward and act like an armor attack or swift-moving infantry, forcing the enemy to react. Then the panzers were freed up to hit when and where and in whatever concentration would do the most damage. But here, that opportunity never came. 
for the Allies stayed on the offensive, which forced the Panzers alone, the infantry were still arriving, to act as feint and attacker, all the while operating as their own defense. Thus were the Panzers beginning to be whittled down in their multiple roles. Meyer and Brigade Führer Fritz Witt, commander of the Hitlerjungen, who were used to being the ones controlling the flow of battle, began to worry about the untried men of that division. Cruel they were, as cruel they were trained to be, but that did not impress the massive amounts of shells coming at them. So the two leaders decided to go all in by throwing everything they currently had at the Allies. As Meyer had been able to retake Kahn and the airfield nearby, he sent his armor and men towards the Allies west of the city. Again, his experience in the east taught him that wave after wave hitting the enemy, regardless of the results, would wear down their resolve. Now it was time to see how the Westerners would react to such a furnace of war. Ten miles south of Caen was the village of Brettville. On June 8th, Witt and Meyer threw an infantry-slash-armor wave at it, because that's how far the Allies had gone, and then they threw another. Between the audacity and the firepower of those waves, the town was reached. But when it came to house-to-house fighting, the Allies were able to hold their own. Before the day was over, the SS troops were leaving Brettville, having suffered too many casualties, and not being able to say the same of the enemy. To make things even worse, the Canadians had managed to take Nori four miles west of the outskirts of Caen. This could not stand, or the entire SS position here was lost. So that night, June 8th, Meyer ordered an attack to retake the town of Nori. As the result got underway, the Hitler Union division had to work with the Panzer IVs from 2nd Battalion. They had wanted to wait for the Mark Vs of the 1st Battalion, but Meyer didn't want to lose the cover of night. The attack on Nori got underway, and it was going well enough, and even better, when the Mark Vs arrived. The tanks were under the command of the experienced Max Wusch, who was hoping the firepower with him could make a difference before the sun came up. But the Canadians had another surprise for the attackers, which should have not come as a total surprise. After all, Stalin had been asking for a second front since August of 1942, and though FDR and Churchill had been putting the Soviet leader off, plans were being considered, including the details of such an enterprise. With the panzers charging at Nori, the Canadians shot magnesium flares into the sky. With the area so lit up, the anti-tank guns could be focused. Still, the panzers reached the town, and the fighting became close quarter. Slowly, very slowly, the Canadian Regina rifles had not only held their own, but pushed Woosh and his tanks back. Then the panzer leader was concussed by a shell splinter. He had to be taken out of the fight, which affected the morale of his men. As the sun rose on June 9th, the panzers retreated back to their starting point. Nori was saved. 
Yet Meyer was obsessed with taking the town and so made the decision to launch another attack that very afternoon. As he didn't have the infantry to back it up, this would be an unsupported armor attack. So 12 Panther tanks set off and were ordered to stay at full speed until the town was reached. The land before Nori was flat, which helped the Panzers tremendously. However, it also helped the Allied anti-tank crews, and there were many more of them. Before going too far, the far-right Panther was hit, stopping the metal beast in its tracks. When one of the crew of that tank looked out to his left, he saw that the far-left tank's turret was ripped off, like a child tearing at something made of clay. By now, the far-right tank was on fire, so the crew jumped out and started running back to their lines. They were quickly joined by seven other crews. Those tanks, too, had been damaged. The five remaining Panthers sped past them all, heading back for safety. When the injured Woosh heard of the attack, he had to weep tears, angry tears. The attack should never have been allowed in the first place. And yet, Meyer would just not let Nori go, or rather, he could not. Not if he wanted to stop the Allied advance here. This failed attack was on the afternoon of June 9th, so Meyer took his last reserve unit, the Hitler Union's Pioneer Battalion, and sent them in in the early morning of the 10th. Yet German radio traffic allowed the Canadians to know what was coming. As soon as the Pioneer Battalion rose, they were hit with a massive artillery fire. Right away, they went to ground and stayed there. To rise was to die, and some of them did that anyways. One can only assume that Meyer would have sent over another charge, but before he could, the British launched Operation Perch. It was their turn to strike out. The 51st Highland Division was sent to the east of Caen, but they were soon checked. Still, this was a feint, as the main British attack was coming around the west side of the town. Yet here, too, the Hitlerjungen and the Panzerlur divisions held them in check. But this meant the Lur Panzers had to stay in place, no matter what happened anywhere else. And sure enough, at the start of this Allied offensive, the 376th Entry Division was right beside the Lur, holding back the United States 1st Division, until they weren't. To the left, or west of Khan, the U.S. 1st was able to push back the enemy infantry division. Soon a gap was created, and when British General Dempsey was made aware of this gap, he sent in the 7th Armored Division. As this gap was to the west of Khan, if the British armored unit could make their way south even eight miles or so, then the German occupation of Khan would be untenable. The 22nd Armor Brigade of the 7th Armored Division moved out on June 12th after getting into position and saw no enemy troops before them. On the morning of June 13th, they rolled into villers Bocage, ten miles from where they had started. And perhaps it was the ease of reaching and taking the village that explains why the brigade commander did not set up a screen or send out a reconnaissance unit to see what was up ahead. For 
what was up ahead was an audacious spirit in an SS uniform, Obersturmführer Michael Wittmann and his second company. On the Eastern Front, Wittmann, his crew, and their Tiger tanks had destroyed 117 Soviet armored vehicles. Fighting against the odds was nothing new to Wittmann. The second company was just south of Villers Bocage, and when the Obersturmführer looked that way through his binoculars, he could see a very long line of enemy tanks and armored vehicles on the side of the road, parked nice and neat. Nothing for it, Wittmann jumped into the nearest Tiger and took off right at the enemy tanks. Getting closer, he could see that they were Cromwell and Sherman tanks. Pulling up beside the first enemy tank, Wittmann slowed down and fired. His 8.8-centimeter gun took out the lead tank. Then, proceeding more slowly, he took aim at tank after tank, laughing as they exploded. The British crews, getting over their shock, finally jumped into the remaining tanks and fired off their own shots, which just bounced off the Tiger's heavy armor. Wittmann finally pulled into the village and, seeing a few more British tanks, and they didn't know what was going on, took them out as well. But now that he was in the town, his speed was much slower, his room to maneuver was reduced, which allowed an anti-tank gun to wreck his Tiger. Wittmann, still enjoying this adventure, jumped out and his crew started running for the headquarters of the Panzer Lur Division to the northeast and they would make it safely there. Twenty-five ruined enemy tanks were left in their wake. By the time Wittmann and company were on foot, two SS Tiger companies were sent to try to retake Villers Bocage. Yet, as they had no infantry support, the embarrassed British were able to win the day. Still, as they felt exposed, the 22nd Armor Brigade pulled back that night. But Wittmann wasn't the only German to show what he was made of. The officers of the Hitlerjungen had discovered the Allies' Achilles' heel only after a few days of combat. The Anglo-Canadians made a habit of charging forward with their tanks, leaving their infantry far behind. And the Allies were currently attacking Monk's 26th Panzer Grenadier Regiment, who was helping defend Kahn. As such, the Hitlerjungen, under steady, experienced officers, set up not one, but two lines of camouflage defense. The first line would let the enemy tanks go by, and only open fire when the enemy infantry was nearby. At the same time, that second line, heavy with anti-tank weapons, would commence firing at the Allied armor. Within seconds, a mortal blow would be delivered to the leading elements of the attacking force. Not that it mattered, as the Allies kept coming. Further, they might have had the tip of their attack cut off, but their response was almost more than the SS units could handle. Proving this, on June 13th, Brigade Fuhrer Witt asked 1st SS Panzer Corps headquarters if he and his could pull back to a more defensible position. Sepp Dietrich and his superior Kramer said no, as they could easily imagine a pullback, being hit hard by the enemy, becoming a full retreat, and who knew where 
that would stop, as the enemy had many reserves to draw upon. Yet proving that they were overexposed, the next day, June 14th, Fritz Witt, commander of the Hitler Union Division, received a serious head wound from a shell from the HMS Rodney as it crashed into divisional headquarters. Having no time to waste, Dietrich was put in charge of the division, becoming the youngest divisional general of the Waffen-SS or the Wehrmacht. And his first act, again, was to ask for permission to pull back. This time, it was approved. More good news, massive amounts of reinforcements were on their way. The majority of the Liebstandarte was on its way from Belgium, the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions, making up Hauser's 2nd SS Panzer Corps, had departed the Eastern Front to help out. The 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Division had recently arrived and was mixing it up with the U.S. 1st Army, and the Das Reich was expected to reach Normandy by mid-June. The question was, would they be too late? The problem with all these reinforcing divisions was that, one, they had to reach an area near the coastline to be of any help, and two, their journey would be harassed the entire way by Allied air power, which had been a major part of the Allies' plan the entire time, to bloody any reinforcements making their way to the fighting. The first to feel the Allied might from above was the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Division. Currently south of the River Loire, it was told to go north to engage with the Americans near Utah Beach, to the left or west of the fighting at Caen. And in truth, the men of the 17th SS were eager to test the mettle of the Americans and were also relieved that the big question, when will they come, was answered. Soon after moving out, the German column was found by the Americans, and within hours, the long line of German armor and vehicles towing large guns was left wrecked. Those that had survived the continued sorties were hiding in barns or under trees. The elation or curiosity of taking on the Americans had evaporated. Only at night could the remainder of the 17th SS travel and even then, they had entered Bocage country, making maneuvering difficult. The emphasis of the 17th had been as an anti-tank unit with 42 large guns, but most of them had been left behind, taken out by Allied fighter bombers. Going back to the area just below Utah Beach, at the town of Caraton, west of Khan, other SS units, along with the 6th Parachute Regiment, tried to reach the town, but the well-supplied Americans held them back. With the area around Caen, in the east of the Normandy landings going to the Allies, and in the west around Caraton, the Germans were being pushed back. Which begs the question, where was the 2nd SS Panzer Division, Das Reich, one of the best within the Waffen-SS? After taking many Soviet lives in the east, and in their turn losing many of their own, only to be replaced over the years, the Das Reich was sent to an area near Toulouse in southern France, as their division was reorganized and resupplied. As this renewal had been needed several times, 
By 1944, there were no fewer than 14 nationalities within the division. To the Germans, these men were far from the best material. Either way, when the Das Reich was ordered north, some of their units had to be left behind, as they did not have enough equipment, normally vehicles. They were to come later when transportation could be supplied. As it was, the Das Reich was moving on to Normandy with at least 200 armored vehicles and some 15,000 men. But not even having gone halfway, the Allied pilots found them and began to lay waste. Taking refuge in Toul, again still far away from the northern coast, the Dalsonite found out that not only was the garrison there forced out by French resistance fighters, but many of the SS secret intelligence service men had been executed. Das Reich, furious, gathered up 117 townspeople to be executed. Some were shot, but 99 of them were hanged from lampposts. Others were sent to concentration camps, which was only the tip of the iceberg. Some 642 civilians in another town were killed when de Fuhrer's 3rd Battalion commander was kidnapped and killed. The shooting at British and Canadians by the Hitler Jungen has already been mentioned, and added onto this would be more civilian executions, with U.S. paratroopers being shot out of hand as well. What was left of the Das Reich pushed on to the north, looting towns as they went, when they finally reached La Haye du Puy, about 18 miles southwest of Utah Beach, on the far left of the German defensive line. They were soon joined by other parts of the division that had started later. At first, Das Reich was fighting next to the 353rd Division, together holding back American attacks. They were mostly successful, but the Americans kept coming. In time, the overall pressure forced the Das Reich back. Now they found themselves fighting next to the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Division. Again, they started out well enough, until the Americans launched Operation Cobra, under General Omar Bradley. Overall, the Germans were focused, nay, obsessed, about Khan to the east, so the Americans came on here with overwhelming force. Normally, the SS and Wehrmacht would have thrown in their reserves to counter this enemy attack, but there were none, seven days after D-Day. A hole was created, and the Allies poured through. This was the beginning of the end of the Battle of Normandy. As for the Liebstandarte SS Adolf Hitler, that had been held back as the OKW still felt that Pas-de-Calais would be the main area of attack. But finally, on June 13th, it was released and told to head to Normandy. Yet, it stopped in Paris for a few days. Clearly, the sense of urgency was missing. But as Dietrich was still screaming for help, a Kampfgruppe of the Lieb was sent on ahead. It would reach the Hitlerjungen late on June 27th. The rest of the Lieb stayed back as a reserve. As the two sides faced off, they were about to put into effect a modified version of the Golden Rule, namely, do unto the other before they do unto you.
The German plan was to put together a massive force and drive right at the enemy line, basically cutting the Allied position into two. From there, one side and then the other would be focused on and annihilated. So Hauser's SS Panzer Corps, again the 9th and 10th Divisions, would be put with the 102nd Heavy Tank Battalion of 45 Tiger Tanks, and they met up on June 23rd, about 30 miles south of Caen. But the British got there first, with Operation Epson, launched on June 26th. The idea was to drive into German-held territory to the west of Caen, deep enough, to then be free to outflank either side, with the result being, for the Germans, death or capture. Kurt Meyer spent the day of the 26th running up and down his line, encouraging his men to fight, who were clearly trying to hold off superior numbers. It got to the point where the German infantrymen were fighting Allied tanks with Panzerfausts, or single-shot, recoilless anti-tank weapons, made of a disposable, preloaded launch tube. Their other weapon were explosive charges that had to be placed on the tanks by hand. Incredible bravery, to be sure, but this was no way to win a battle. Still, Dietrich was told to hold on. Help was coming. The good news for the Allies was that the British fought until they were parallel with Khan. The bad news was that they just ran into the strongest part of the German line. Then heavy rains came, canceling out Allied air power. Then the Hitler Jungen's tanks were thrown in at the strong point. The British were held back, but Meyer could see, before the day was out, there would be breaches in his line. Sure enough, that afternoon, the cooks of Hitler Jungen's headquarters staff had to take up their arms to hold the enemy back. Fortunately for the SS, some of their Tiger tanks arrived and checked the British. Still, a dent had been made in the German line. Meyer was reporting back that the British advance had been stopped. What he left out was that this local victory had cost the Hitler Jungen division 730 casualties on that day alone. As for his report, it was made too soon. The next day, June 27th, Dietrich, again thinking he had stopped the British, who had to be tired, launched his own armored counterattack. Moreover, Hauser's 2nd SS Panzer Corps was almost in place to start their great push north to divide the Allies. But as Dietrich's panzers moved forward, the Anglo-Canadian force had their numerous artillery ready. The panzers were struck again and again. But this was not simply an artillery attack to stop the Germans. It was an artillery barrage to soften up the enemy before the British moved out again. Operation Epson was not over. The next morning, June 28th, the British pushed until coming to the top of a ridge that allowed them to look over Caen by looking back to their northwest by some four miles. Caen had been bypassed, and now the Allies could rain down shells on the Germans for miles in all directions. <laughs> 